Come, Lord Jesus, and manifest yourself in power and might, but above all, in mercy for us sinners. Amen. Growing up, I had such wonderful images of the story of Noah and the ark. It was always a big theme during vacation Bible school, and we even had the songs. You know, they came on by twosies, twosies, elephants and kangaroosies. And it was such a wonderful image. Even uh, my mother decided to decorate the downstairs uh, powder room with a Noah's Ark theme. And I remember this very nicely carved Noah's Ark and all these fluffy, wonderful, cuddly animals and uh, a bearded Noah, which kind of looked like a skinnier version of Santa Claus. And it was just such a wonderful, touching, uh, wonderful image. And then in the fifth grade, I was doing an art project on engravings. And my mother said, well, there are some really interesting engravings in a book up on the shelf by a man named Doré, if you want to take a look at those. And you probably have seen some of Doré's engravings. They're normally in big family Bibles, and they're very uh, well done and and beautiful. And my eyes happened to fall upon, right out of the gate, Doré's engraving of the flood. And Doré portrayed it with a rock sticking up out of the water, with the ark in the background some distance away, and on that rock was an infant child being held up on the rock by their mother, who was almost completely submerged in the flowing waters. And above the infant child, there was a tigress and her cub looking hungrily at the infant child. So much for the powder room. Well, it really struck me uh, heavy and knowing that really Noah and the flood is a story about judgment and judgment through water, that God caused it to rain so much upon the face of the earth and the flood waters rose and uh, sin and wickedness uh, knocked out by the flood, but not quite because not just the people on earth were under judgment, but also the people who were on the ark, except that God showed them mercy by being on the ark. The ark was their refuge. And this morning, St. Peter paints for us this big contrast between the Old Testament concept of water, which almost is always exclusively used in terms of judgment, and this idea of baptism in water, where once it was judgment, is now a sign of our salvation. Indeed, throughout the Old Testament, it's very hard to find some positive images regarding water. Do you remember learning about the great stories of the Israelite Navy in Sunday school? No, (laughs) there wasn't one. Uh, In fact, uh, they were deathly afraid of water. And stories like Jonah go to show us that. David writes in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Even today in the Judean wilderness where David ran from Saul, flash floods are a common occurrence, and many a backpacker has been lost because you know that Israel is sort of like this V, and at the top is Jerusalem, and the water flows down to the Mediterranean, and it flows down to the Dead Sea, and especially on the Dead Sea side, the West Bank, Uh, the waters would come down from Jerusalem into these canyons and gullies and all of a sudden just sweep people away. 
Indeed, we all know the feeling in life of being in water and not having a foothold. Lauren and I decided on our anniversary, because I'm such a romantic guy, to do a canoe trip through the Cumbie Swamp in South Carolina. And uh, on the thing, you get to see the nature, and they kept talking about this spider that walked on water. And I thought, well, I'd like to see one of those. And uh, unfortunately, I got what I wanted. And I watched him walk on the water, and then I went, turned to Lauren and say, hey, there's a spider, but he's gone. And then I looked into my lap, and there he was. Well, I fell out of the canoe, or the kayak, to say the least. And um, in South Carolina, there are things underwater and bare feet that feel like logs, but they move. And to be in that water without a foothold and all of these things swirling around me in the dark waters, I just needed someone to get me out. I needed somebody to get me out. And so I can identify with David who feels that he is sinking in deep mire where there is no foothold. But Peter says that this sign of water is one of judgment has now become a sign and a symbol of salvation. That we know that through baptism, we're made a covenant people of God. The corollary to that in the Old Testament is circumcision. That the male in every Jewish household on the eighth day uh, would be circumcised. And even women would be incorporated in the community by virtue of being married uh, to somebody who was Jewish or being in a Jewish family. They were all part of the community of God. An outward and visible sign that they were the covenant people of God. And yet, we know in the Old Testament that there were those who were circumcised of the flesh, but not circumcised of the heart. Those who outwardly displayed the profession of faith, but in their hearts, they did not believe. And so too, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, we find calls to repent and be baptized, to believe and be baptized. But we always hear belief in the Lord Jesus as supremely what is necessary for salvation, but sometimes it is coupled with baptism. Baptism is never alone held out as what is necessary to be saved. Indeed, in Acts 16, with the Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas had this wonderful all-night hymn sing, and then the earth shakes and the jail doors come flying open, and the Philippian jailer asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the Lord of the word to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Belief and baptism are never ever separated in the New Testament. Indeed, in our own baptismal service, the two are never ever separated. But we've really lost that along the way. Uh, Right now, in many churches, we celebrate confirmation as simply a rite of passage. Almost a Gentile bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah where you're just kind of at that age. It's time for you to be confirmed. But what it is, is at that time, you're taking those vows, you're confirming your faith in the Lord Jesus that were made on your behalf at baptism, the sealing of your baptism. It's coming full circle where faith and baptism have finally met in that faith that God has implanted in your heart has made your baptism efficacious. Indeed, it is in confirmation that we learn that baptism alone does not save 
But it's Christ's atoning death on the cross that saves. And in baptism, we see this wonderful image of God's love for us because it's not simply some rite that we go through at birth, at the birth of a child, but it is something more than that. We see that it's God's initiative at work in our life to bring salvation to us. No child ever willfully gets up and walks out of the pew and says, I'd like to be baptized. In fact, more often than not, the child screams and they fight and they try to thwart it. They're being baptized whether they like it or not. And no one ever baptizes themselves. No one ever gets up and says, step aside, Andrew, and does it themselves. But it's God's outside agency working through the baptism and outwardly with water identifying with Christ, that Christ was died and buried, and out of the water we live again. Though we were dead, we have been made alive in Christ. John Calvin said, as often as we fall, we should recall our baptism and thereby fortify our minds so that it may be sure and certain of the remission of our sins. One of the wonderful things about John Harper's new book, um, and I'm not being compensated to say this, uh, but there are lots of wonderful things, but he talks about our baptismal font, which is back in what we call the baptistry slash children's chapel. And if you've ever noticed it, there are eight sides to it. Do you know why there are eight sides to the baptismal font at our church and a lot of other churches? Well, Peter tells us how many were saved that day from the flood. Eight. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Indeed, we see at the baptismal font the image of Jesus Christ, our ark and our refuge. One of the hardest passages from Genesis in the narrative of the flood is in verse 16, when the writer says, And the Lord shut Noah in. You can almost hear the key turning to the ark. And that used to bring dread into my heart, just like those Doré engravings I thought were there they are on the outside. But it doesn't say that the Lord shut everybody else out, but that the Lord shut Noah in. God kept Noah in the ark. He was safe and sound, and God was protecting him. Indeed, as Jesus tells us, that he has come to give us life eternal, and we shall never perish. And no one shall snatch us out of his hand. I've noticed recently in a lot of the movies that I'm watching, which makes me sound a little bit nerdy, but I've noticed it in Harry Potter in the Matrix recently that I've seen this image of being up on a high place and the hero and the enemy fighting And out of nowhere, the hero simply grabs hold of the enemy and goes tumbling off the building or tumbling off the bridge or tumbling down off the mountain. And they fight all the way down. And this seems ridiculous to us because surely in embracing the enemy and going over the edge, it means sure and certain death for the hero. But that is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. On the Mount of Calvary, Jesus grabs sin, death, and guilt, and he takes them over the edge. And he embraces them, 
and he doesn't let him go, even to the point of his own death, in order that death may die. The Lord has shut us in. Jesus is our ark of refuge. He has taken that which was once an image of judgment, of water flooding the earth, and he has now made it a sign and symbol of our salvation. You know, at the end of the flood, when the ark struck ground, God made a covenant with Noah that he would never flood the earth again. And as a symbol of that covenant, what did he do? He placed in the sky the rainbow. Now we see the rainbow and we think, oh, that's, that's pretty. Pot of gold, leprechauns, whatever else. And we think, well, that's nice. And yet there would have been no mistaking for Noah and his family what that represented. From their daily life, they used it all the time. And that is the image of a bow and arrow. Where in the judgment of the flood, the bow and arrow of God was aimed squarely at a sinful earth. But now God places the rainbow in the sky to show us that the battle bow is now directed squarely at him. That God himself takes on his own wrath and his own judgment in our stead. And makes that which is a means of judgment to be a means of grace for salvation in our life. And so, children of God, no longer objects of judgment, but by water and the Spirit and faith in Him, sons and daughters of He who died for you and is the ark of your refuge. Amen.